one of the reasons I'm not likely to move to Vermont anytime soon. <laughs> Notwithstanding the Ben and Jerry's ice cream, which is delicious. James Madison, we're, Jimmy and I are close. We go, we go back a long way, so I call him Jimmy. Uh, You're a vampire or something. Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> they are what happened when we lose sight of the limited nature of government. And, and the need for limited government, especially within our federal system. And Paul, Paul, Paul said very clearly, it's for freedom that crisis sets you free. He is um, 25 years my senior. Um, he's got a lot more hair than I do. He does. Which, which isn't fair. I'm Rick Walker. I'm sitting down with some of my most captivating friends to discuss topics ranging from politics and business to religion and pop culture. Welcome to Conversations at the Mansion. Senator Mike Lee, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Welcome to Texas. Oh, it's good to be here. Uh, so let, let's just jump right in with politics, if that's okay with yeah. you. Uh, you've been in the Senate for 10 years, going on your 11th. Yes, sir. Um, what, what is it like being in the minority right now in this sort of hyper-partisan type of environment, especially working in D.C. day in and day out? You know, it's different. It's different than many would imagine. Uh, on the whole, I'd say over the last 10 years, the Senate is actually uh, a more collegial place than people might imagine uh, from the outside, in part because you have TV crews follow people in any workplace, and you have them capture the most contentious moments in the workplace and then put those on TV. People are going to walk away thinking that they're just constantly arguing. It's not really how it works. That said, the last few months have been very different. Uh, the, the last few months have been particularly tense. Um, I'd say that most... Uh, Democrats and most Republicans, um, speaking at least for myself here, really like each other genuinely as, as colleagues, even when we don't agree on a number of things. Um, but um, it's gotten a little tense lately. There's, there have been some growing pains with the Senate losing the majority sure. uh, among Republicans and uh, with the transfer of power from one administration to the next, different political parties. It's tense. Great, great. And I, I noticed there's some, some quirks that fall in uh, every once in a while. I saw Joe Manchin's comments yesterday about maybe he wouldn't support the infrastructure bill because of the corporate tax hike. I assume there's some fun surprises there with the 50-50 split. Yeah, there are. And uh, love Joe Manchin. Uh, talk to him all the time. One of the things I appreciate about Joe Manchin is that he's uh, genuine, he's authentic, he is who he says he is, and he's a man of his word. He's also not someone who's going to take orders from anyone else. He views himself as having earned his own election certificate in his home state of West Virginia. He doesn't work for anyone but the people of West Virginia. Sure, sure. Uh, HB1 that, that, that I think just, just got handed off to the Senate in the past few days, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Because it seems like it totally changed the entire electoral process and maybe it's something that's contrary to what the, what the founders intended. I have grave concerns with HR1, which I sometimes refer to uh, as the Illegal Voting Act, in part because much of its purpose focuses on federalizing the voting process, yes. federalizing elections. Uh, elections, remember, are one of the last bastions of state authority. Uh, it, it is states, not the federal government, in charge of elections, in charge of registering people to vote, of actually setting up the polls, counting the votes, and so on and so forth. H.R. 1, among its many other sins, would make it difficult to impossible for states to cull through their voter registration files and get rid of people who have moved out of state, who have died, who have registered to vote somewhere else. Uh, these are things that really should be decided at a state level, sure. not by Congress. And they're flipping the principle of federalism on its head uh, to 
great danger, and uh, th this would not be a, without consequence, is could end up putting in a uh, us in a position, um, I, I believe, where it would fundamentally change the political paradigm in this country. Sure, sure. And I, I think we just got a lecture maybe 90 days ago about the importance of the state legislatures in the, in the election process. No, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and what's good for the goose is good for the gander. What, what, that's right. What, what was true a few months ago about the, uh, the primacy and, and, in many cases, the sole sovereign uh, capacity of the states uh, is, is, is no less true today than it was just a few months ago. Yes, yes, yes. Well, so um, I have, a, I have a, a, a thank you gift. It's below the $20 minimum, and you can, you can leave it if you have to. But uh, I wanted to give you a gift. Thank you. And I want you to tell me, tell me a story about the gift. So we're thro throwing you off, off guard here. But uh, there's, there's certainly a story around the gift. Let's see. Oh, yes. Well, this is, <laughs> this is fantastic. Uh, first of all, thank you. You're welcome. It's a beautiful T-shirt. And, uh, of course, displays Aquaman, one of my favorite superheroes. Yes. Um, I think the significance here likely has to do with a speech that I yes, gave that's right. on the Senate floor. A hugely floor viral speech. Just a couple yes. of years ago, yeah. I gave a speech about the Green New Deal and um, opened with a picture of Ronald Reagan riding on a velociraptor, holding a bazooka, and a shoulder-mounted missile launcher. Uh, and I, I opened it by saying, you know, this is a picture of Ronald Reagan, uh, fighting the culminating battle of the Cold War. And then I, of course, went on to explain, well, there was no culminating battle of the Cold War. It was, <laughs> it was one without firing a single shot. And uh, this picture and the story I initially told about it is therefore as fanciful as the assumptions underlying the Green New Deal. Sure. And then I displayed a series of images about um, how far we could take the Green New Deal, showing a... a a drawing of a tauntaun. That's uh, right, that's right, a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that species of uh, reptomammalians on the ice planet of Hoth, uh, providing for effective transportation. Uh, I also showed a picture of Aquaman, given that the Green New Deal, according to its sponsors, would basically end air travel as we know it. So what then, I asked, would we do about places like Hawaii, yes. where you can't really visit Hawaii without air travel? So I proposed perhaps Seahorses, uh, you know, that, that could be really fun. That's right. <laughs> they're, um, they're carbon neutral, they're totally natural, they're biodegradable, and all of those things. You know, it was funny, um, I didn't, uh, didn't warn my family that I was about to give that speech. The biggest warning I provided was to my wife. I, I, I texted her from the Senate floor as I was about to speak, and I said, um, I'm about to use the word frickin' on the Senate floor. <laughs> so I referred to borrowed a line from Austin Powers, uh, sharks with frickin' lasers on their heads. <laughs> I had some fun w with, with that speech. Um, uh, Carolyn Madden, who's a member of my staff, was in charge of putting the visual aids up because there were a lot of them. And she got great props on she YouTube. She was hilarious. Yeah, she, she kept a straight face through the whole thing. Didn't crack <laughs> up once. But, you know, the... the uh, one other thing I'll, I'll, I'll say about that, one time I was, um, now this was a good six months or so after I gave that speech, I was riding in an Uber somewhere, and this driver, a really young millennial uh, guy, said, um, you know, I found something on YouTube that you might think was funny. He had no idea who I was, and I said, there was this guy, he was giving a speech somewhere, and he kept saying, Mr. President? And uh, he was talking about, like, Star Wars characters and stuff like that. 
Uh, yeah, I, I had to explain to him, yeah, I think you're referring to a senator giving a speech about the Green New Deal, and he said, yeah, that's it. <laughs> so so w was there actually anyone in the chamber when you were giving that, giving that speech? Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz was in the presiding officer chair, and I was so glad that my friend Ted Cruz was in the presiding officer chair because, you know, he and I are dear friends, and we get each other's sense of humor, and um, he was laughing the whole time. It, yes. it, it was fantastic. <laughs> And you, and you did close with a serious thing. You, you, you said the solution to the, the Green New Deal, why we don't need the Green New Deal, you know, is because of babies. Make, if, we, if we make enough babies, there'll be enough ingenuity in the world or some, some derivative of that, of that statement. Yeah, yeah. And, but look, the thought there was that we do need people. We need to rely on human resources. We need to rely on the fact that um, human beings should be viewed by us as a society as, as assets, not as liabilities. Something like the Green New Deal or any march toward... Uh, bigger government towards socialism inevitably culminates in our viewing human beings not as assets but as liabilities, and that's a tragedy. It is a tragedy. Uh, I definitely, I certainly want to get back to that. Uh, but the the idea that you're in D.C., uh, you've got things like the the Green New Deal, you've got things like H, this HB one bill um, that is they're, they're they're detached from reality. So the HB one is detached from from the, the Constitution and the and the authority of the founders uh, intended. Uh, the Green New Deal is detached from economic theory and also from uh, uh, a, a wide variety of, of, uh, of principles that, that, that have to do how we live our daily lives. And, and they're just really not based in truth. They're not, they're not coherent, first of all, uh, but, they're, but they're, they're totally illogical in their, in their formation. Why do you think there's such crazy things coming out of D.C.? Do you think that it's, it's maybe media-driven? Media do you think it's uh, maybe instinctive-driven? Uh, I know uh, Dan Crenshaw, who we've had on uh, a few days ago, uh, said that there's this victim versus um, uh, victor uh, uh, theory that, that's at play, and they try to victimize everything so they can ram through the, the legislation that they want. Or is it sort of, sort of like moral problem where they, they, they feel like they need to um, maybe, maybe bend the will and, and, and be able to accrue power in certain ways? Uh, why, why, why does this crazy stuff tend to come out of D.C.? You know, it's a, it's a tricky thing. I, I think it's very difficult to un, unravel it and explain any one cause of it. Um, my longstanding theory is that um, the, the twin uh, pillars of any successful society where the human condition is allowed to thrive, they, they have to include um, free markets and robust institutions of civil society, especially communities of faith um, and families neighborhood groups and things like that, as we've allowed government to interfere with both, with free markets and civil society, we've kind of placed more emphasis on government than civil society. And in many, many cases, we've elevated government to a status that it should never enjoy, a status above community, above free markets, above family. And in some ways, we, we give to government some of the reverence that ought to be reserved for the Almighty. That's right. That's of great concern to me. Um, you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when the people of Israel wanted a king, the prophet warned them, um, you don't want a king. This is what a king will do to your sons. This is what a king will do to your daughters. This is what a king uh, will do to your grain, to your land, your property, uh, and all of your other resources. The people of Israel continued to clamor for it, saying we want to be great like other nations. 
In some ways, that's what happens to us with a government. We become unduly awestruck by the things that a big government can do. After all, it can build big, huge buildings. It can create big, new programs. It can even create really powerful weapons that impress and intimidate everyone. And when people become awestricken by that, and they, they start to think of government as being, uh, I don't know, almost invested with qualities of omniscience and omnipotence. Yeah. That in turn causes us to come apart and, and disconnected, and it causes us to do things we shouldn't do. Another thing that's happened there is that it causes us to deviate from the rule book of governments, which is this. Yes. It, this, this document, the U.S. Constitution, written in 1787 by wise men who I believe were raised up by God to that very purpose, because uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even Jesus Christ himself, wants us to be free. He implores us every day to choose liberty over captivity, to choose freedom over bondage. He knows, and, and, and those who wrote this document understood that you have to split up power. You have to divide it. You have to protect the people against the dangerous accumulation of power in the hands of the few. So things like H.R. 1, things like the Green New Deal, they are what happen when we lose sight of the limited nature of government. That's right. And, and the need for limited government, especially within our federal system. That's right, yeah. And Paul, Paul, Paul said very clearly, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Like, there's, there's, a, there's a purpose there to Christ, Christ's work. Um, I think about uh, Federal, I think it was Federalist Paper number 51, uh, Jimmy Madison, uh, James Madison. We're, Jimmy and I are close. We go, we go back a long way, so I call him Jimmy. <laughs> Uh, You're a vampire or something. Yeah, that's, right? that's right. <laughs> and uh, he, he said very specifically uh, that you really can't trust men, that you've got to have a government in a, set up in a way that, it, that it's, it's self-governing. They, they have the checks and balances, kind of what he, what he inferred there, and that because men, men aren't angels. I think is maybe he took a, took a quote from John Adams, I think is, who said that men aren't, men aren't angels. You can't trust them like you could an angel. Right. Um, and, and so you're right that, that this division of government is set up for a specific purpose, and, and you talk a little bit about that. Uh, you gave a great speech at the, I think, the Oxford Club a couple years ago uh, on this about the vertical and the horizontal balance. I don't know if, you, if you'd want to dive oh, into that. I, uh, look, in my small town of Provo, Utah, we speak of little else. I'd love to speak <laughs> about this. Yeah, and you're exactly right. James Madison in Federalist 51 uh, wrote one of the best essays ever on the nature of human beings and how that nature needs to be taken into account with government. If men were angels, they wouldn't need government. If we had access to angels to govern us, we wouldn't need all these rules. But we're not angels. We don't have access to angels to run our government, so we have to have rules. Um, look, um, Madison understood something. He understood something about human nature. He was also a student of the Bible. He understood that we're not supposed to put our trust in the arm of the flesh. I think that's part of this contrast that he draws between men and angels and the fact that we're not angels and don't have access to them, we got to have rules. That's right. And so that's why they put in place a uh, document and a structure for government that separated power with these structural protections along two axes. The vertical protection we call federalism. It says that most of the power is to remain at the state and local level where it's closest to the people. We'd established this pattern in practice prior to the revolution of American colonies governing themselves. They did a pretty darn good job, except when the king and parliament got involved, and then they messed things up a little bit. And we put just a few powers that were distinctively, unavoidably, constitutionally, national. Everything else would be left to the states. That's the vertical protection we call federalism. The horizontal protection 
operates on the, this horizontal axis within the federal government, whereby we say we're going to have one branch, Congress, where I work, the legislative branch. It's going to make the laws. That's the most dangerous branch, and that's why we make it most accountable to the people at the most regular intervals. Yes. All the House of Representatives up for re-election every two years. A third of the Senate is up for re-election every two years. Then we're going to have an executive branch headed by the president that will execute, implement, and enforce the laws. Then we'll have a judicial branch headed by the Supreme Court that will interpret the law uh, when, when people disagree about its meaning. As long as all three branches operate within their respective lanes, and as long as we keep this balance between state and federal power along the vertical axis, we prosper. And this has, in fact, prospered the development of the greatest civilization the world has ever known. It has ushered more people out of poverty and into a, 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 a middle-class or better environment uh, uh, than, than any government program ever could. And it's precisely because it sets us free. When, when you lock up government, when you restrict government, you unlock, uh, you unlock unlimited human potential. It's kind of like the string on the kite. By holding it down, you allow it to rise, it being the people. Yeah, great, great. And, and you know, Thomas Sowell talked about the constrained versus the unconstrained and, and uh, those, those two visions. Uh, so so the, the, the basis of this and, and what, what Federalist 51 was about, and mentioned he's a, he's, uh, Jimmy was a, was a great scholar of the Bible, um, that uh, you, you got Romans 3.23, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Um, and, and that's sort of the thesis of, I, so I'm a Baptist guy, and so we believe in a concept called original sin. I don't think Mormons have the same belief, but it may be, there may be something similar there, that because Adam sinned, we, we all eventually sin. Uh, uh, we all make mistakes, whether we do it in action or we do it in thought or do the right thing for the wrong intent. Um, but, but that seems to be kind of their, their basis for why they need to set up these checks and balances. They realized 300, 250 years ago that men, if left to their own devices, will eventually do the wrong thing. That's right. That's right. And, and yeah, I, I mean, we, we believe essentially the same thing. We're not responsible for Adam's transgression, but we are affected by it. He opened the seal uh, to the condition of mortality. And, and all human beings ever since Adam have been in a condition where they sin. Uh, save one, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who was sinless. All others uh, are sinful. And, and that's exactly why we need these protections. That's right. That's human right. beings are, are, are deeply flawed. We are redeemable, but we're also flawed. We've got to take that into account with our system of government. That's right. That's right. So uh, clearly you're a constitutional scholar, um, and, uh, and some, of us are, some of us like to be constitutional amateur uh, readers, I guess, definitely not scholars. Look, uh, constitutional amateurs are, are a thousand times better than constitutional <laughs> scholars on any day. In part for that reason, uh, and in part because I really am just an amateur, I, I put myself in the amateur camp. <laughs> so, so I want to know what your thoughts were. You were, you were on the short list for uh, Supreme Court uh, when uh, Kavanaugh got the, got the call up, and obviously he did not have a fun time. I, don't, I want to know what was going through your mind whenever you were, you were watching those, those hearings. I was just trying to help him get through. Yeah. And what was on my mind was um, there, there were accusations raised against them, the accusations, if true, would have been troubling to many, and our job was to figure out whether they were true. And in, in deciding whether any accusation is true, you evaluate the nature of the accusation and the nature of the accuser, and you look for any corroboration that you can find from the accuser. Um, the uh, circumstances that Dr. Ford described were tragic. Uh, we could not find a single single witness to corroborate 
any detail associated with that account. Not a single witness could even corroborate that the gathering in question ever occurred. That was sad. It made me sad for everyone involved, including and especially Brett and Ashley Kavanaugh. Sure, sure. You feel like he dodged a little bit of a bullet there. It seems like they would have come after anybody. I mean, he, he's, he's clean. The guy's clean. Yeah, yeah. and look, they, they probably would have come after anyone, and we know that because they do. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's one of the great tragedies about this process by which we have um, deviated uh, uh, both from the vertical protection of federalism and from the horizontal protection of separation of powers. The net consequence of this, as it's been happening under the leadership of Republican and Democratic houses, Senates, and White Houses of every conceivable partisan combination over the last 80, 85 years, is that we've inflated certain parts of the government, especially the federal government. Yes. We have downplayed that the legislative branch has itself in seizing this power and moving it away from the American people to Washington, D.C., has then insulated itself from the American people by handing off more and more power, usually to the executive branch, sometimes executive branch bureaucrats, sometimes uh, the, the White House itself, the president himself, and in other cases it defers blindly to the Supreme Court for things that aren't necessarily the Supreme Court uh, decisions to decide. So as a result, people wrap themselves up uh, far too much. Their, uh, their identity is determined by who holds certain offices in Washington, D.C. In particular, who occupies the White House and who sits in the seats behind the bench in the Supreme Court. Has the administrative state, the, the deep state, has it become more powerful than the, than the, than the president himself, or, or is, it, is it trending that way? In some ways, yes. Okay. Um, in, in some ways, it has. And it's, uh, uh, it, it's of great concern anytime you have a self-perpetuating um, interest within government that is itself immune from, insulated from elections. And so, yeah, the, the, the deep state, if, if you define it, as I certainly do, is that part of the government that isn't accountable to elections and that part of the government that finds a way to persist in doing whatever it wants to do, uh, regardless of the outcome of elections, and actively resists uh, the direction of the Congress and the presidency. And yeah, it's a big problem. Sure. And, and you know, we, we've seen that over and over and over again, especially when you've got a, uh, a, a, a perpetual DC workforce uh, that tends to lean overwhelmingly left. Look, the, 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 these folks, I, I'm not sure why, it's kind of like uh, the same reasons why certain professions, including journalists, uh, and including career bureaucrats, they tend not to lean right. And so when it's as though when a Democratic president comes into power, uh, the career civil service bureaucrats are there ready to help, advance, propel, and even accelerate the president's agenda. Yeah. When it's a Republican president who's elected, they're there to insert the control rods to make sure as little happens as possible, and they do. So your most recent book, Our Lost Declaration, you cover the sort of the buildup to that where you would have governors going, walking into the state houses. I think, it's, I think maybe the House of Burgesses in Virginia and maybe North Carolina, if memory serves, uh, between maybe 1765 and 1775 and, and just walk in and say, you guys are done. Yep. yep. 
And it, and it seems like that put a, that, that had a, a huge impact on our founders. Yeah, it, it did, as did the fact that they were, um, they were largely the um, people in charge of running their own system of government. So during the colonial era and during the, uh, the, the, the period following the revolution, um, states were more or less in charge of what happened within the state. If you look at the Constitution today, uh, the, the Constitution today still makes states in charge of most things. And so most of our day-to-day -day lives uh, are, are most properly subject to regulation if there is occasion for government to get involved by states and their political subdivisions, including cities and counties and towns, um, and not by the federal government. And um, I think we would be better off if we had more of that model today and the simple reason is, in addition to the fact that it's what the Constitution requires, it's what the Constitution requires because it works better. There is an immense regional diversity among and between the states. Um, and there always has been, e even in 1787 when they wrote this document. They understood that there was then uh, a divergence among states in terms of regional preferences for how government ought to operate. Uh, Today, for example, I'm told that most of the people in the state of Vermont would much prefer to have a single-payer, government-run, government-funded healthcare system. That's one of the reasons I'm not likely to move to Vermont anytime soon, <laughs> notwithstanding the Ben and Jerry's ice cream, which is delicious and it's made in Vermont, I'm told. <laughs> but and the Utah, Utah powder, by the way. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Um, now, Vermonters ought to be able to go where they want. Utahns wouldn't prefer to do it that way. Neither would Texans or Wyomingites. People in other states have different views, but the people in Vermont would be able to get to a single-payer, government-run, government-funded healthcare system much more effectively, efficiently, and quickly if the federal government weren't occupying such a gigantic space within healthcare. That's what that's part of what we've gotten wrong, is that federalism, when we properly follow it, allows more Americans to get more of what they want out of government and less of what they don't want, That's less right. of what they fear, less of what would harm them. That's right. I mean, Frederick Bastier, could, 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 his books could be, could be circulating in D.C. probably, probably wouldn't do too much damage. We need Bastiat today, yeah. uh, perhaps more than ever. Yeah. Um, uh, he, uh, Frederick Bastiat, uh, did so much uh, and could do so much more if only we would read him as a society, if only he were required curriculum in every school uh, to help explain what government is and what it isn't. That's right, that's right. So when you go home to, to Utah, you're the senior senator. Mitt Romney is the junior senator, and, uh, but he's 25 years your elder. Yeah. So, so the, the clear question is, do you ever pull rank? Like if you guys go out to eat, do you ever make him pay the bill? No, I think he would say, uh, Mike, since you're the senior senator, you're going to have to pay the bill. <laughs> and, I, and I also note that although he is um, 25 years my senior, um, he's got a lot more hair than I do. He does. Uh, which, which, which isn't fair. Uh, but as he told me, um, has told me many times, he, he said, at my age, I really do like any title that comes with the name Junior. So <laughs> That's hilarious. So, so you, you endorsed uh, Senator Romney in 2012, and so w did you know him before that? 
uh, no, in depth? Not, not really. Okay. I'd met him a handful of times. Okay. Didn't know him well, okay. um, but uh, uh, have gotten to know him certainly uh, much better since then, since he's be become my colleague. But um, uh, yeah, I endorsed him in 2012. Uh, I don't remember exactly what stage it was at. I don't know if he formally had the nomination. It was pretty clear that he was going to get the sure. nomination by then. I, I was slow in making a nomination that year, in part because I, as is now becoming the norm in my life, I knew a bunch of people who were in the race. I had a number of friends who were in the race, including my former boss, John Huntsman, Jr., uh, who is, uh, uh, remains to this day a dear friend. And um, uh, Ron Paul, uh, the, the, the yes. father of my dear friend, Rand Paul, was also in. So, yeah, I, I, I waited until it became pretty clear. Didn't want to upset any friendships that I had built over a long period of time. Sure, sure. Uh, in 2016, you you endorsed Ted Cruz at, kind of out of out of the gate. I mean, there were there were a number of other folks still in the race, obviously. Um, was, was that primarily from, from friendship or ideology? What 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 made you pick Ted Cruz? Well, over it was it was both. Okay. It was both, and it was also um, a circumstance in which I could see. You know, I had a number of friends and a number of colleagues. It seemed like at times I felt like uh, maybe the only Republican senator not running for president. Uh, but it became apparent to me that um, Ted was in a very good position, potentially, uh, to take the nomination. He was polling number and, two or number three when you endorsed him. Yeah, 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 he was. He was. And Rand Paul had gotten out of the race by then, and it was looking uh, like uh, neither Marco Rubio nor Lindsey Graham would remain in the race very much longer. And uh, Ted and I have... Uh, a lot in common in terms of our professional backgrounds. We both served as law clerks at the Supreme Court. We were both appellate litigators by trade. And we, uh, there's probably no member of the U.S. Senate with whom I share a closer worldview, uh, with whom I share a closer political ideology than Ted. Great, great, great. R Rand Paul, Ted, and I are both uh, very close together. We have uh, minor differences between the three of us, but we're all pretty close. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so, so the eventual winner of that Trump um, goes through the four years, surprises a lot of us about how conservative he was. Uh, what, do you, what do you think Trump's, Trump's next play will be? I mean, do you, I think he's got tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars in the coffers. Uh, does he come out and take vengeance on at least the first 10 people that voted to impeach him? Um, or, or does he... Does he go elsewhere? What, like, what, do you, what are you hearing? What do you, what do you think? I don't know. You know, I've, I've learned um, never to make a prediction uh, that is so full of so many variables as this one is. And, and uh, honestly, I, I don't know how to predict his next step other than to say I think he's got a lot he can do, and I think he will make this decision carefully. I tend to think he's not likely to go out and make his cause be retribution, because I think he's stronger than that. I think he's bigger than that. I think he has a bigger vision than what that narrow focus would entail and end up requiring. Um, I tend to think that his next move might well be something to give voice to the many, many tens of millions of Americans who feel like they've been silenced, who feel like cancer cancel culture. Uh, if it hasn't silenced them, it's often silenced many others who happen to agree with them. 
I tend to think that he'll come out in support of some kind of cause in order to give more Americans more of a voice. Sure, sure. I think I saw in the last 24 hours that Pence started a new organization that Trump, Trump is backing as well. Uh, maybe, maybe that's something to propel Pence more into the spotlight. Uh, and I, I think part of the purpose that, that Pence was talking about was that it's a blend between Trumpism and, and, and traditional conservatism. Um, and it, it seems to me over the last four years that, 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 that kind of Tea Partyism uh, has, has really kind of taken a secondary spot to, to Trumpism. Uh, I saw some polling in 2018 uh, that showed that Trumpism was about 36% of, of Republicans and the Tea Party had, had, had dwindled uh, to about half of that over that time period. And of course, Trump was, was on fire back then in sort of the, the late, uh, late 2018 time period. But uh, what, are your, what are your observations about Trumpism versus traditional conservatism towards uh, Tea Party um, in, in the trajectory of all, of all three over the next few years? <clears throat> where's the, where's, where's party, the energy? Where's the term the energy? Tea Party is interesting. It, yeah, it, it, it never surprises me to hear that there are fewer people identifying themselves as such, in part because the term isn't in as strong usage as it used to be. With the exception of a small handful of groups, most notably Tea Party Patriots, uh, run by my friend Jenny Beth Martin, which is a fantastic organization, uh, most other conservative groups and movements uh, tend not to be using that name anymore. And that probably ends up being a good thing for Tea Party Patriots, helps with their brand. But uh, people in general just tend not to use that term. But I think um, many, if not most, if not nearly all, people who supported uh, President Trump in his efforts to drain the swamp, understand that draining the swamp is first and foremost something that people who previously identified themselves as part of the Tea Party movement would have agreed with. In other words, um, I think the future of the party is today and will continue increasingly to be uh, made up of those who realize that something's very wrong, that we've moved power away from the people in a dangerous way. We've moved it from the people to Washington, and within Washington from the people's elected lawmakers to unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats. It's been really good for a small handful of elites, small handful of people who either get more powerful or, in some cases, more wealthy because of the accumulation of power and with it wealth in and around Washington, D.C. You know, a, a few years ago, I looked and I found that something like six of our nation's 10 wealthiest counties are suburbs of Washington, D.C. Now think about this for a minute. That's kind of messed up. Wow. This is a, an area that, well, lovely, it's got some neat buildings, great architecture, and um, museums and monuments and things like that. It manufactures nothing. There are no gold mines there. It's not a banking hub. It's not an intellectual property hub in any sense that we would ordinarily recognize? No, no, no. The, the money is there only because the power is there, concentrated in the hands of a few elites. Americans, even if they wouldn't use those exact words to describe it, they know something's wrong when we've moved power away from them in those two steps. And when we've been making the wealthy and powerful, even wealthier and more powerful, through government manipulation. They know something's wrong with that. I don't know what name will accompany that movement next. But it's going to be, become a very big thing. It's going to become the next big cause as it's been slowly developing over the last decade. Yeah. 
So, so you mentioned economic freedom a few minutes ago. You also uh, just introduced the concept of manipulation. Uh, I, th I think of something uh, that's been happening over the last two or three years uh, regarding the, the, the treasuries and the, and the Federal Reserve and their uh, partnership. Uh, I, I follow the 10-year Treasury yield, and, and last year it was about 25 to 30 uh, basis points, so 0.3 percent. And uh, right now I think it's at uh, 170 basis points. So it's five times more. It's got a 500 percent increase over the last 12 months. There's some manipulation going on there. And then, and then we found out even, even under Trump that, that they were going in there and buying publicly traded securities, they were buying index funds, they were buying all sorts of treasuries and, and artificially propping up the, the economy. It seems like it's more of a um, socialistic or maybe even Maoistic type of, type of work to get that ingrained in, in, in our economy. Yeah, it scares me to death, especially given uh, we've now got $30 trillion in debt. So if you, you increase the yield rate uh, fivefold in a short period of time, that's going to have massive ramifications, even as we've gone from, what, to 22, 23 trillion up to 30 trillion in the last year or so. That's kind of scary. Um, I think last year our total interest on our national debt was something in the range of maybe $350 billion or something like that. It's an enormous amount of money. That's an enormous amount of money that could, uh, you know, otherwise be put to, to fixing this or that problem within our government, or uh, if we didn't spend it, return to taxpayers or something. I, I don't know. It's an enormous chunk of money. But what troubles me most about it is not even that it's that big, which it is, too big. It's that it's that small, meaning if you've got $30 trillion in debt and you're only spending $350 billion a year or so in interest, that is true only because even though Treasury yield rates have gone up significantly over the last year, they're still at all-time historic lows. And some would argue they're still near zero or, 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 uh, uh, or, or zero, effectively, when you take into account inflation. That's what scares me to death because, look, what goes down must eventually come up. And one could predict a rebound above the historic average for Treasury yield rates. But let's, let's, let's assume that's not even going to be the case. Let's just assume that we go back to our historic average of Treasury yield rates within the next few years. It'll only be another year or two after that. Once that happens, before we go from spending about $350 billion a year to well over a trillion a year, just in interest on the national debt, that delta between what we're paying now in interest and what we'll be paying then in interest on par with our entire Department of Defense budget. Where are we going to get that money? You, you, there's not a tax increase fathomable that could produce that amount of revenue overnight without simultaneously depressing economic growth, leading to less revenue the next year. You could always say, well, we'll just, um, we'll just print more. We'll just borrow more. We'll find some other way to tax. Any one of those things will have adverse consequences. And you know what? Those consequences will be felt more by the poor and middle class than anyone else. That scares me. That's right. That's right. I received an email last night from a friend of mine who's probably worth maybe $100 million. And he gets, he's forged this email from me from the SBA that says, hey, you know, you've got 30 some odd businesses. You took an EIDL loan out, out for one of them, emergency, for the maximum $150,000. Uh, if you want to, you can reply to this email and we'll put you back in the queue and we'll increase it up to $500,000 per entity. 
and we'll give it to you for, I think it was 48 months interest-free. No payments for four months, for 48 months. Interesting. That's, I mean, that is just excessive in nature, and you see this sort of outrageous spending in this, in this debt encumbrance that, that they're putting upon, upon the people right now. And what it looks like, it looks like the Great Reset is underway. I, I don't want to be conspiracy theorist about it, but you've got the COVID shutdowns, you've got this, this absorbent amount of debt. It's basically being placed on the federal government and also on the population, and it's being just handed out. And if you're a business person, if you don't take this money, you're being inflated your way out of your, your current currency that you have on hand. Badly, badly inflated. And uh, look, uh, saw a chart recently showing the increase in the M1 money supply over the last few years, last four, five, six years, and then uh, in particular over the last year. It's stunning how much more um, currency we have in the, 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 the M1 money supply category uh, than we had uh, just a few years ago. It is, it seems to me, almost inevitable that once that money is being fully employed, um, seems somewhat inevitable that we'll see very significant inflation. That, that's of great concern. That's right. That's right. One of the interesting parts of your book was that you focused on this list of grievances um, from uh, uh, Jefferson wrote about King George III, Mad King George, which was clearly Jonathan Groff in the Hamilton musical, for those that don't know. And, uh, Such a great King George III, by the way. I, it's I, fantastic. He was fantastic. the best part of the whole musical, he, wasn't he? He really was. He really yes. was. And I, and, and I loved every part of that show, but especially that one. That was great. How realistic was it? Well, um, obviously, the, the founding fathers weren't um, expressing their every thought in song and dance. Um, <laughs> Uh, with a lot of hip-hop influence. There were, um, the, the major facts, the major factual turning points uh, were more or less accurate. I think they, they added a few things here or there to make this or that subplot line a little more interesting. But I thought it portrayed a lot of events surrounding the American Revolution pretty well. Sure, sure. You look at, you know, you, you're a big advocate of human ingenuity, having babies uh, for more ingenuity in the world. And you look at someone like Lin-Manuel Miranda, who's, who's on the opposite side of the, of the uh, political spectrum, who could write something like that. Which he, and he read thousands and thousands of pages about our, our, our founding and the founders. And he decided that, I watched an interview um, of him a few, few months ago, he decided that the only form where you could get enough words out was, was to rap. You couldn't do an opera, you couldn't do any other form. And the, the fact that that guy researches it, he writes every word, every piece of music in there, and then stars in the play. It, imagine if you if you got one percent of your citizens that are putting out that kind of ingenuity, that kind of talent. Oh, it's amazing. And I I don't remember the exact numbers, but I hear that the average Broadway play has maybe ten, fifteen thousand words in it, and I think Hamilton had something along the order of fifty-five thousand words. Yeah. Uh, just a, an enormous amount of data compression in there, and yet. He does it in a way that it's not a uh, it's not a tough read, so to speak. It's yeah. uh, it, it goes down well. So th this this is my I have three I have three little girls. They went as the Skyler sisters for uh, mm. Halloween last year, and um, I was in the car yesterday, and they, they liked singing the Hamilton soundtrack. And one of them Googled, so the, the baby was was Peggy Skyler, and so they Googled like went to research Peggy Skyler, and they went on Wikipedia, and they said her name wasn't Peggy. I said, what do you mean her name wasn't Peggy? Yeah, her name wasn't Peggy. It was Margarita. But, but Peggy is a traditional nickname for 
Margaret and Margarita, so it's not it, entirely. It devastated an eight-year-old, though. That's yeah, the problem. <laughs> tell, tell me that's okay. That's okay. A lot of people with the name Margaret have historically gone by Peggy. So yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 all is not lost. <laughs> um, well, so we talked about uh, this list of grievances. King yep. George III kind of got. I got off on a tangent there, so I apologize. Um, so uh, you've got this list of grievances. It sounds like some of the same things that you just spoke about, uh, overtaxation and a lack of representation in the proper format because of the federalism, the concept of federalism, the 10th Amendment is really kind of going out the window. You've got this development of a deep state. Um, very, very eerie parallels. Yeah, there, there are, there are. Um, big difference here is we don't want to have to have another revolution. Nothing like what happened um, uh, some two and a half centuries ago. All we have to have is a return to the uh, system that we already have in place. Just, and, and we can change that with the way we, we vote. When I wrote our lost declaration, I, I wanted to help the American people understand uh, the fact that the Declaration of Independence very much provides the vision of who we are, who we want to be. Uh, the Constitution, in many ways, is the framework. It's the frame around the picture. The Declaration is the picture itself. Now, this is a follow-on to a, a previous book I'd written called Our Lost Constitution, in which I'd spent a lot of time talking about Alexander Hamilton. Uh, coincidentally, it uh, hit the shelves at about the same time that um, uh, the Hamilton play hit Broadway. Uh, I'm not going to tell you which one was uh, more <laughs> successful, but it, it, it was not my book. Fantastic book, though. Our Lost Declaration describes the Declaration of Independence, which is the, the picture protected by the frame that is the Constitution. It's the, it's the view that relates to the inherent dignity and the eternal value of, of the human soul. And part of what they did, part of what I outline in this, is that there's a, a list of grievances part of the Declaration of Independence that outlines the things that King George III had done to the colonies that were not okay, sending forth uh, swarms of officers to eat out the substance uh, uh, of the people, uh, not respecting limits on their power, not acknowledging any limit uh, on their own power. Things that were making it very difficult for the uh, colonial governments to operate. Things that made it impossible for them to pass laws in some circumstances where he was disbanding their legislative assemblies. <clears throat> All of these things put them in a position where they felt they had no choice but to separate themselves. This was an extraordinary step, as they've mentioned. They, they, they themselves were English subjects. They always understood themselves as such. And so it was an extraordinary step to separate themselves from their mother country. But they said in circumstances like these, where so many of our fundamental rights and liberties have been taken away, we've got an obligation to do it. That's right. That's right. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what you what you read because clearly you've got wide knowledge uh, in, in different areas. Um, you clearly have read a little bit about about faith, whether it be in, in scripture or other places. You've read a little bit about about history, probably a lot about history in the Constitution, um, and obviously economics as well. But what, what do you what do you enjoy reading the most on a, on a Saturday afternoon or a, or a Sunday afternoon? Okay, so uh, fiction, not too long ago, I, I read a book called Where the Crawdads Sing. Okay. Yeah. I don't remember the name of the author. My wife started reading it, and then I, I, I read it after starting the book with her. It was fantastic. Um, I, uh, 
uh, read a book a couple of years ago that I quite enjoyed called Half Broke Horses. The same um, author wrote another book called uh, The Glass Castle. Yeah. Um, I can't remember her name either. Fantastic. So I, I like fiction, but I also like historical books and nonfiction. Um, I really enjoy, this is weird of me, I know, but I, I really enjoy uh, from time to time revisiting classic masterpieces like Alexis de Tocqueville's uh, uh, great work, Democracy in America. Every so often I'll pick up that book and reread it, and it reminds me of what, what it is that has separated this country apart from others. Uh, it, and it really is its civil society and its free markets more than it is its system of government. We sometimes think that the government is synonymous with the country, and it's not. It, it, the subtle but very clear takeaway from uh, democracy in America is that it worked here in ways that it has failed so many other places because we didn't make it all about government because we understood that the true power resides in the home and at the neighborhood level, at the community level, uh, within our faith communities. The government is there, you know, to make sure that we don't harm each other, that we're not attacked from the outside, and that we don't steal each other's property. But the government doesn't define us, and that's part of what Tocqueville recognized as separating us apart from others. I love reading the Federalist Papers, and from time to time I'll, I'll pick them up and I'll read uh, Federalist paper here or there because that's in, important material for me to be constantly reading and rereading as part of what I do for a living. Sure. Uh, it, it's a reminder of what operates in what way with the federal government. We've talked about Federalist 51 today, yeah. one of my very face, favorite parts of it, talking about human nature and the fact that government is just an exercise in human nature. It, it reveals what it is, that we're not angels, we don't have access to angels, so we need rules about government. I love Federalist 45. Federalist 45 says that uh, uh, the, the powers of the federal government are few and defined, and those reserved to the states are numerous and indefinite. Um, I think Madison would freak out a little bit if he saw that today we've kind of turned that principle on its head. Um, I like Federalist 62, especially the part in which uh, Madison explains that uh, it'll be a little benefit to the American people if their laws are written by individu individuals of their own choosing, if those laws are so voluminous and complex and ever-changing that people can't read and understand them and be aware of them from day to day. Uh, w we have taken many of these principles and we've openly flouted them. Um, Anyway, I, I, I enjoy reading things like that. Sure. Uh, it makes me happy. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think one of the funny things, I, I was thinking about your comment about Adams and, and his, his, his talk of angels, how you know, if we were angels, he could trust us. But I think it's, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where it says that we're actually going to judge the angels. Yep. And uh, kind, of, kind of a unique, unique twist there. Yeah. Well, we, we all have a role to play. Uh, all of... All, of God's children have a role to play and we have responsibilities regardless of whether we're aware of them at any given time. And uh, I, I think every one of us has a responsibility to look out for the safety and well-being of everyone else. It, there is immense harm that can come 
from government itself for the simple reason that government best understood is the official collective use of coercive force yes. under the imprimatur of state authority. Uh, that, that is a, a scary thing, and that's why it's where we ought to guard um, against erosions of liberty most that come from governments. Yes, yes. Chesterton said the most scariest, the scariest thing that someone could hear is that, hi, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. Yes, indeed. I mean, I mean that, that's, they're the worst people to be helping. Right. They're exactly who you need to count on when, when you need, you know, an, an army or a navy, when you, you need to fight a war. You can't do it without a government. That's right. Maybe some free trade every um, once in a while. Some um, <laughs> trade agreements, uh, uh, you know, at a state and local level, uh, you, you need police. Um, but the more, the more things you put into the government basket, the more contentious it's going to become. That's right. And if you make the government the arbiter of who should have what in terms of material possessions, government's not going to be able to do that well at all, and it will end up undermining the very purposes it's there to protect. That's right. That's right. I, th I think in, you mentioned um, the, the divinity of God earlier and a little bit of inalienable rights uh, or unalienable rights. Um, I think there's two, two different worldviews, and they're, they're, they're generally on the opposite ends of the political, political script, uh, uh, spectrum. One is on our side where we think that our rights are inherited from God Almighty and we then delegate those to the proper governmental authorities, how we, how we deem fit, and that we're, we're wise because he gives us a drop of his wisdom. We love because he gives us a drop of his love. We, are, we have a little bit of the immortality bred in us. None of us really think that we're really going to die because our father thinks that he knows that he'll never die. Uh, Christ, uh, I'll, use, I'll use the famous Lewis line that you hear around Christmas time. Uh, that uh, the Son of God became a man so that men might become sons of God. Like, we're, we're, we're going to live forever. That, that's what Scripture shows us. That's on one side of the sp uh, political spectrum. The other side then thinks that, no, we get our rights because there's not a God. There's no ultimate truth there. We get our, we get our rights from the government. And since they are the ones, they're the arbiters of the governmental hierarchy, they are the deep state, they are however you want to put them in power there, they are the ones that choose the victims and, and build policy around victimhood that's, that's falsely misplaced then that's where we get our rights from. And that's, I think those are the two worldviews that we've got to figure out a way, how do we mitigate both those and get them to work together again? Yeah, look, I, I for one don't, don't ever want my rights, my inherent worth as an eternal being uh, attached to a government. Because when I'm attaching it to a government, I'm attaching it um, not to an abstract concept so much as a group of people who at any given moment wield power, human beings, are flawed. They're redeemable, but they're flawed. Right. Well, we don't want to put our faith, our eternal worth in the hands of mortals. In fact, I, I believe God doesn't want us to do that very thing. And, and I think we, we undersell our own value when we do that. In many ways, it feels to me as if, um, you know, I've long wondered uh, why there are so many examples in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, about idolatry. It seems to be such a consistent warning. And as a child, I often wondered, gosh, it's not really an issue today, or at least not in America. Why do we need to focus so much on this stuff? In some ways, I, th I think if we're not careful, we, we can turn government into the new idolatry. It, uh, a, a system by which people will... Uh, 
uh, infuse a degree of omniscience and omnipotence into fallible mortal human beings or entities that they themselves create. That's of great concern. We should never be in a position to do that. We should never let ourselves get to that point where we're that far away from putting our trust in God. Our dignity, our significance, our worth, our status as immortal children of an all-knowing, loving, all-powerful God um, certainly deserves more than what can be preserved if you put it under the control of a government. We don't want that. Well, we deserve more. We should expect and demand more. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, talking about more, um, uh, I think it was uh, I think it was Tozer and then Lewis that echoed him, or maybe vice versa, where they talked about the most important institution in the entire world is the family. Um, you're a you're a busy guy. You're you're a long way from home. Uh, you could be on the powder the, the powdery hills of uh, of Utah. Uh, with your with your family right now, if you want to, but you're out you're out serving, you're out uh, spreading the, the idea of, of conservatism and, and and God God enabled God descending God cascading down rights uh, to us, and that gives that uplifts us actually. Um, what do you do <clears throat> just as a as a dad, as a as a husband, as as someone that's that's in a faith community uh, to to be able to maintain that intactness of your of your family unit, that most important institution, and then also those that are closest to that while you're away. Yeah. So our, our children are, are grown now. They're, they're all in college or, or graduate school. And uh, so the demands of being a dad are still significant, less, um, less intense than they were when they were younger. But I have been in this business for 10 years. And so I, I had to make a decision at the outset of this that when I was home, I was going to be 100% home that I was going to check in on them daily, that I was going to make sure that when I was home, I'd pray with my kids, uh, read the scriptures with them, uh, find out what was uh, happening in their lives, update them on what was happening in mine uh, to stay close. Um, I wish I could claim that I, I've always done a perfect job of that, and, and I will make no such claim, but I've done the very best I know how, and I've been blessed with... Uh, with a wife uh, who is my best friend, uh, was my high school sweetheart, who shares the same commitment to our country and to God uh, that I do. She's the uh, best mother uh, anyone could ever hope to have, and I'm uh, very grateful to her. So we've had um, uh, so many joys as parents with our children, and uh, she taught me how to be a good dad and how to love being a dad. I didn't always know whether I would. Before I had my own kids, I, I wasn't sure whether I would like being a dad or not, but she, she taught me how to love being a dad, and I do. So anyway, that's the um, uh, best way I can answer that is to say I, I enjoy nothing more than being a husband and a father. Well, Senator Lee, I appreciate your time coming in. I appreciate your service in D.C. and appreciate your, your example as someone that's, that's true to his faith, true to morality, and true to the Constitution, and uh, pr proud to call you a friend. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. That's great.